Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And we've got two really important interviews today. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Lauren Caulfield, who is the coordinator of the Policing Family Violence project in Melbourne and Lauren has done some really fantastic work also um, with the Police Accountability Project previously but today we're going to be speaking with her about family violence in the police force so for example we're going to be talking to her about what's been happening with women um, particularly across Melbourne and how the they have had found it very very difficult and challenging to escape from their abusers. And basically, police are too often failing um, to take action against other police who commit domestic violence. And basically, there is a culture of impunity in forces across the country and putting victims at risk. And this is actually um, an ABC investigation that was conducted recently, so we'll be speaking with Lauren about that. And then after that, we will be speaking with Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. And we're going to be speaking to him about just an update about what's happening with asylum seeker and refugees, what the collective is doing now. And he's also going to be speaking about a forum coming up tonight, actually, in regards to the LGBTI um, asylum seekers and the way they're treated in Australia. So, yeah, we'll be speaking with Lauren shortly. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367 10am to 6pm every day. 
Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And in case, in case people have just tuned in, this is 3CR Community Radio. And we're speaking now with Lauren um, from Flatout. Hello, Lauren. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks so much for having me on. It's lovely to have you in these very, very unusual circumstances, Lauren. Yeah, they're pretty wacky times, aren't they? Very wacky. Um, and in fact, Victoria is just coming out of stage for lockdown. Um, we'll see how we go with that. So, Lauren, I'm wondering if you could just just start off maybe just talking about your, your work um, at Flatout and just, just briefly, like, just explaining a little bit about your, your title. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I work with a project that's called the Policing Family Violence Project and we're a project uh, that was developed specifically to respond to police accountability issues, duty failures and harms related to family violence policing and to intervene into and to prevent the criminalisation of victim survivors of family violence. So we work really specifically at that intersection of intimate partner or family violence and harms related to policing or, or state sanctioned violence. And of course, flat out is is also a service that that deals specifically to to help women who have been out of prison, exit prison. That's right. Yes, and to work and to work with people who've been criminalised. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, can you tell us what's been going on with family violence in the police force? I believe there was an ABC news, like an ABC investigation. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So so last week what we saw was some quite sweeping coverage and a series of pieces by um, an ABC journalist, Hayley Gleeson, who had spent about a year engaged in a freedom of information request process that covered uh, police in different states and territories around Australia, trying to gather what information police actually know themselves about police who are perpetrating intimate partner or family violence. And so after going through that kind of year-long information battle, what happened last week was that Hayley uh, published the results of, of those findings and she looked at a number of different states and territories. She had a strong focus on what was happening in Victoria and she also spoke with a number of women who had themselves been through the experience of, of both experiencing family violence by a police officer often a partner or an ex-partner, and then the process that they had gone through in trying to seek any kind of accountability or any kind of support from police around both uh, both escaping that violence um, and often going through a complaint process, which we know is largely self-investigative, so a process where we see police investigating other police and what the experiences were, were for women um, in that situation. And I think, so what, what was so striking about what was published last week was that it's the first time, I'm going to talk about Victoria for a second, but it was the first time that police have admitted what they know and that, that is that there are vast disparities in how police respond to family violence when the perpetrator is themselves a police officer. And we're talking about massive differences uh, in outcomes uh, for police versus the general public. And, of course, that's something that comes as no surprise uh, to us and as no surprise to, to the women who've been through those experiences because it's what they've been saying and, you know, it's what they've been living through and it's what they've been saying for a really long time. This is indeed quite concerning, isn't it, Lauren? Yeah, look, I think, it absolutely, you know, it's, it's 
for, to, for me, I think it's deeply chilling uh, on a number of levels. Like what's finally coming through in this admission is what family violence survivors and advocates have known and been saying for a long time, that, that while the violence is likely high risk and targeted and sustained, that if the person perpetrating it is a police officer, they or he, predominantly he, will likely be excused. And, you know, it's certainly it's more than a case of a few bad apples. And the numbers, even the numbers that have now been released, the numbers of officers charged is not representative of the total number who will be perpetrating family violence or the scope or seriousness and impact of this violence. You know, any time there's any coverage of police-perpetrated family violence, we absolutely hear from other people, mainly other women, in similar situations. And it's absolutely a crisis. You know, so, so while Victoria Police don't publicly report on data about police who perpetrate family violence, we do know from what limited information we now have and from what's made public in other jurisdictions internationally that police are very likely perpetrating family violence at higher rates than in the wider community. So we're talking about this really significant intersection of violence and power and access and impunity that has enormous ramifications for victim survivors and for the community as a whole. So a question that was quite often asked during this ABC investigation was, where do you turn when your abuser is part of the system meant to protect you? Sure, absolutely. And I think that what we see is that largely in these situations, and you know, I'm talking about women because it is predominantly women, but what we see is women who are made even more isolated by police responses to the violence that they're experiencing and they're left having to navigate both that situation and either to work their way more safely through the system or to avoid service systems entirely in order to keep themselves and their children safe. So what we're seeing is women managing double risk, so both the risk of the violence itself, but also often a risk that is increased when that violence becomes known or is disclosed to police. So basically what's happening then, let's, let's, be, let's be clear, what's happening is that police in Australia are often failing to take action against women that... Um, sorry, against domestic violence perpetrators. So women that need help uh, are think, uh, like they're basically being turned away. That's right. And I think what we're actually seeing now is a light being shone on, on what we know about a really kind of chilling culture of impunity that sits around police, where we see concern for the officer's reputation good standing role in the community, absolutely taking precedence over the, the safety and the wellbeing of victim survivors of both women and children. But how often do, do we... We hear this so often, Lauren. Let's look at, just for a minute, systemic racism or, you know, racism mm. of, um, you know, vulnerable communities. And you have senior police saying, oh, yes, we don't tolerate racism. In the same way that you've got senior police that are saying in public, look, we don't, we don't tolerate family violence, and yet they don't do anything about it. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think you're pointing at something really, um, really significant here, which is about about what sort of cultures we're talking about and what, what types of uh, kind of institutional dynamics might be sitting around that violence. So... I think when we're talking about an organisation like police, we've seen a couple of really comprehensive reviews uh, that look at the culture of policing, and they include reviews by the Victorian Equal Opportunities and Human Rights Commission. And so they conducted a review called the Independent Review into Sex Discrimination and Sexual Harassment, Including Predatory Behaviour in Victoria Police. 
And this study excluded both family violence by Victoria Police and predatory behaviours or sexual harassment against members of the community. So it was purely looking at police against police. But it, this research makes some really important comment about harmful police re responses, and it specifically talks about the consequences of the masculinising environment, and that's a quote, of the police force on attitudes. But it doesn't comment on police officers who are themselves using family violence. And we're at this really particular point, I think. You know, we're having a national conversation about the gender dynamics of family violence, and we are certainly, when we talk about violence prevention, we're really engaged with ideas around what the drivers of those violence are. So we can talk about things like violence supporting attitudes, rigid gender roles, you know, the role that hypermasculine environments might play. And in this case, we're talking about an institution where it's acknowledged that those behaviours, those environments and that culture absolutely exist. But we see that institution then still centred very strongly as first responders and very closely kind of embedded to the, into the family violence service system in Victoria. And I think that's, you know, it's a real challenge and I think it's something that is, a, is absolutely a challenge for the family violence sector and for the community in thinking about what we imagine, you know, what we imagine safety to look like and, and who and where we imagine sites of safety to exist. And national data on the number of police officers charged with domestic violence, mm -hmm. there's not really all that much. And, and in fact, in fact, it looks he like here that state police forces um, haven't really taken criminal action, have they? Against no, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to say about that. The first is yes. that I think the data itself can be really tricky. So Victoria sure. have, you know, Victoria Police kind of made quite a lot about the fact that the number of charges laid against officers has increased. So they released data over a five-year period and they said, look, you know, the number of charges has really increased. But we know that just one officer accounts for 70 of the family violence offences or charges recorded against officers in Victoria. So if you remove that one officer from the figures, the data tells a really different story and actually has Victoria Police falling back below the state average. And then I think, you know, there's a couple of other things that are really relevant in there too. You know, it's not just the rates of violence, but it's the type of violence and the power differentials that are of concern when it's police who are perpetrating family violence. You know, we're talking about officers. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Lauren. So what... what sorry, just to, to go back mm. there. So what types of violence would you be talking about, about there? Well, I think what's really crucial for us is police are trained in and authorised to use force. You know, they're armed. Yeah. They have sweeping access to things like information, to databases. When this authority and access and training is weaponised against intimate partners or family members, then the violence and coercive control is really serious. It's sustained, it's high risk, and it's incredibly difficult to escape. And we're working with women where the officers who perpetrate violence against them have done things like use the elite police database to search everything about both them and their family members, uh, where police officers have used police resources like patrols to track their movements and have then deliberately disclosed the information that they've accessed this way to the person that they're abusing in order to increase fear and control and limit ability to escape. So we're talking about really disturbing and particular acts of violence that are absolutely magnified and increased by the person's role and access as a police officer. And disturbingly, the officers in these cases have often themselves undertaken police training in responding to family violence. And in some instances, they've even worked in or transferred to family violence roles or teams whilst perpetrating violence themselves. So it's a really significant and, and sort of chilling 
type of violence. Um, and I think the other thing that's really relevant, you know, when you were talking about the question of are police taking action, it's also about what's the central concern of the outcomes from recorded incidents. So what actually happens when police know that one of their own is perpetrating family violence? And the data that we saw released last week lets us know that there was not a single recorded family violence conviction of a police officer of five years of data in Victoria. And for us, that tells us all that we need to know. You know, that says a huge amount about levels of impunity. That is absolutely disgraceful, Lauren. Yeah, I, it's, it's absolutely staggering. We're talking about yeah. not a single officer convicted, not a single officer sat. I am still here. Can you hear me? I believe she can hear me, but I can't hear her. Let's just wait and see if she comes back. I'm here. Can you Don't hear me? Don't hang up, Lauren. I want to drop smooth not bombs Hop trains, bottles, giving every info shop I want to give free therapy out in the park Go to preschool, jump stop, crack, 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 food not bombs When I was new to Melbourne I found a food not bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch We... I guess rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time Show. I believe we had a little bit of a technical difficulty there. Someone didn't like what we were saying. Hey, Lauren? <laughs> it was nice timing for the disappearance. Could you, could you hear me at all? I could hear you, yes, but I think you couldn't hear me. Were you still talking? I was were still you? talking, yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> no, I'm always still talking. Good. Um, because <laughs> we've covered quite a lot of ground. And look, you know, it's been so important. This is such an essential interview because it's important to really look about all this stuff and, and the culture within the police force. Let's move on now to um, some examples of what's happened with women experiencing family violence in the police force. Yes. Yeah. Look, sure thing. And I want to be a little bit careful about what I'm saying because obviously I, you know, I want to be careful that things aren't identifying and I'm really no, mindful that people not. also have, diff have different things in train. But I Very guess what generally. I would say is that, yes. you know, people might have heard Michelle, who's the woman um, speaking under a pseudonym, who's now spoken out very clearly about her experience with Victoria Police, her experience of having police share her escape plan with the perpetrator of violence, who was himself a Victoria police officer, and the huge amount of harm and risk that that exposed both herself and her children to. That was a disclosure that was made to him on the grounds of, of what Victoria police called member welfare. So despite knowing that the most high-risk time in a situation of family violence for a woman is the time when she's making an escape plan or a plan to leave the relationship... They nevertheless shared those details of her escape plan, including where she was intending to go to and when, with the perpetrator of violence. Um, we absolutely have seen, you know, that's 
that case and the type of uh, systemic collusion and impunity that she saw in that case, unfortunately, it's not an exception. I think it's really similar to other things um, that, that we've seen. We work with women who already have investigations in train who are being told to report breaches to the same station at which the officer works or where other breaches, including privacy breaches, have already occurred. And we're talking about a really massive conflict of interest. So like Michelle, we hear from women who've been dissuaded from reporting, but who've been told to be conscious of the kind of stress he's under when they've tried to make reports about the violence. And what we're hearing from most of the women who've been through it that we work with, what most of them say is if they knew how bad it was going to be, they wouldn't have reported in the first place, uh, which I think is, is really significant if that's, the, if that's the experience that people are having and that's the, the lesson and the message that they would take home with them. Absolutely. And, and in fact, there's also um, the situation where you've got where they're being told, oh, be careful about reporting because he may lose his job. Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely the case, yeah. And then people being humiliated, women being humiliated in front of colleagues as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's a really challenging thing to expect anybody to be reporting to the friends or the colleagues of the person who's using violence against them. It's, it's a massive conflict of interest. So police are basically policing themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in Victoria, I know that, that there was a parliamentary inquiry that looked into the police complaint system in Victoria that absolutely recommended that Victoria move to an independent uh, investigative system, so move away from a system where police are investigating complaints about other police. But what we see in Victoria is, you know, where there are problems with, with police conduct and, and women are making complaints or people are making complaints, the overwhelming majority of those complaints about police conduct are being returned back to police for self-investigation. And it's the, the substantiation rates for those complaints are extraordinarily low. So data that came from the Police Accountability uh, Project Police Complaints Clinic. So that's a situation where people are receiving assistance from lawyers in making complaints. So they're not just making them independently. They've got the advice and the assistance of lawyers in gathering evidence and, and sort of drawing together their complaint to submit it. And even in that case, less than 2% of the complaints made about police were returned substantiated. So we're talking about a system that really doesn't work in the, you know, in favour of, of the complainant, the person making the complaint. And that's absolutely even more significant when we consider the dynamics of, of family violence um, and, the, and the various barriers that exist for people experiencing violence to even make that complaint in the beginning. So mostly what we've found is that the people that we are working with or assisting, they just don't want to make complaints. They would rather not do it because it's not worth the cost and the risk to them. What happens? They just stay, they have to stay in the relationship. Uh, yeah, or well, that people escape. are taking action to keep themselves safe. So what we're seeing is some really innovative and creative. You know, we know that people experiencing violence are themselves experts in risk management, and so often what we're seeing are really creative and resourceful sort of safety plans that come and are developed by the person who's experiencing violence themselves. And often we see then agencies or workers trying to find ways to, to assist those people to remain safe without relying on police responses. Yeah. So basically, really, we need to call for an urgent overhaul, don't we, of the way police handle domestic violence matters involving their own? 
Yes, I mean, Victoria Police would say that they're putting together a new policy to deal with this. So part of the information that was gathered by journalists under Freedom of Information, uh, one of the things that was gathered was an internal review that was done in 2018, and that included a presentation that talked about improving responses to family violence involving employees, where Victoria Police acknowledged internally um, and then what they acknowledged was that we are policing ourselves differently. We could better support victims. We are not clear on our approach to perpetrators. But I think what what is a real what of, of real concern externally is are the deeply conflicting messages given by Victoria Police Family Violence Command on this issue exactly. So this this is sort of the second bite of public media coverage around police perpetrated family violence this year in Victoria. And in June, uh, ABC Radio on, on Virginia Trioli's program, Michelle spoke out for the first time and there was coverage of her experience uh, with her ex-partner. So the violence she experienced by him, and he was a police officer, and the privacy breach I mentioned. And then in response, we heard from former um, Family Violence Assistant Commissioner, Dean McWhirter, who's still an Assistant Commissioner but not of Family Violence, and he came out publicly and what he had to say at that point was that police hold their officers to a higher standard of account than the general community. But now what we've found under FOI is that Victoria Police have known for a long time that in fact they're policing family violence entirely differently when the abuser is one of their own. And we found out that indeed this was the subject of a discussion between senior police last year and the subject of an internal review in 2018 and that still not a single family violence conviction has been recorded for a police officer in five years of data. So we're talking about, you know, something that I think is absolutely damning in terms of findings under FOI. So just to summarise, how can we improve the system? Look, I think it's a question that gets put to us, um, and it's a tricky one. You know, I think that often there's a question about you know, what can fix this? What are, the, what are the tweaks that can be made? And from my perspective and from our perspective, the reality is that there are no easy reforms that will address this intersection of, of intimate partner violence by police with the violence of police indifference or collusion at the systemic level because I think fundamentally it actually demands that we rethink some really common assumptions about police as a side of safety. Um, so that's, I guess, the first thing that I want to say. But if we're speaking immediately, there's a few things that need to happen. So police self-investigations absolutely need to be abolished for the safety of, of victim survivors. I think generally that survivors need to be believed and, and their safety prioritised. And for us, you know, we really back the women who have spoken out a thousand percent in their own calls for accountability from a police system that's exacerbated the risk and harm enacted upon them by the individual officers. Um, and I think we're talking about things like we, we actually need to call for those officers known to be using family violence to have their employment terminated. You know, for us, I think it's, it's absolutely the case that being a perpetrator of family violence at home should be incompatible with being armed and on duty. And I think that needs to be a baseline that's held. Um, and then around the data itself, you know, journalists shouldn't be fighting to get this data under freedom of information. If, if Victoria Police want the community to take them seriously at all about how seriously they take this issue, then they should be reporting publicly on essential information, including the number of family violence incidents involving police, how many intervention orders are taken out against police, what in investigations are underway, 
you know, what charges are being laid and the nature of these charges, the outcomes of all of these, and how many members are facing disciplinary action or having their weapons removed or having their employment terminated. I think we actually want to talk about tangible outcomes. And indeed, at some stage, and this is going to sound pretty morbid, but I think we need to actually go a step further and have a look at, at femicide and have a look at, uh, you know, how many women being murdered could be murdered by police. Now, I'm not suggesting that all women that are murdered are murdered by police, but it would be interesting to do some, you know, to do an investigation on that sometime. Well, I think we, yeah, we're certainly talking about you know, when we're talking about police-perpetrated family violence, we're absolutely talking about high-risk lethality violence. And I think that's what women and it's what advocates are saying, that, that it's only, you know, it's only a matter of time before that becomes lethal family violence. So it's absolutely that significant. So would it be fair to say then, um, finally, that police need to implement specific policies to ensure investigations are rigorous and fair and, and a culture of impunity, a pattern of protecting abusers over the abused? I think that, you know, I think there are others better placed than I who would talk about internal reforms in police, but what we're talking about um, are certainly, uh, you know, what what oversights and what else exists around police. So I think it's about calling for uh, survivors to be absolutely believed and supported in their experiences. I think it's about calling immediately for the overhaul of the complaint system. So we're talking about abolishing self-investigations. So I think we're talking about those kind of systemic changes and absolutely calling uh, for the sacking of officers who are known to be family violence perpetrators. A most thorough investigation. I mean, there's so many quotes here. Like, even here there's a quote from a woman who says, oh, it's like he never switched off from cop mode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I... Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that we hear really clearly. You know, we've, we've heard from women who say, look, these officers have had specific training in investigative and interrogation skills and they, what we see is that they are using and exploiting this in their abuse. So they're using manipulation, denial, gaslighting behaviours to increase their coercive control. So we're absolutely talking about skills that are related to the work that they're doing uh, that are absolutely being used and weaponised in the course of, of intimate partner violence. Quite a few organisations have um, have have contributed to this investigation, and there's a really interesting quote here, Lauren. Um, it says, "From listening to the partners of police we support, police do not appear to be investigating these matters in the same way as they do other domestic violence matters. And some mm. women have told us they feel police are actively blocking justice for them." And that's a quote mm. from Rosie O'Malley's chief executive of the Gold Coast-based Domestic mm. Violence Prevention Centre. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say we have, you know, we we have a really similar experience down here. When it comes to some of the figures that were released, we're talking about, we're talking about down here, 82 officers charged, 10 who went to court, nine who had their charges withdrawn, and one officer found guilty with no conviction. And so if you compare that to what you're seeing in the general population, like 2019 figures say that 11% of defendants finalised in Victoria's criminal courts had their matters withdrawn by the prosecution and 84% of family violence defendants had their charges proven. So we're talking about entirely different figures when it comes to police versus the figures for the general community. And indeed, it, it could be construed as police officers being practically invisible. 
That's right. And I think we're talking about a level of kind of protection related to their role that really follows them all the way through that process, you know, all the way through the criminal legal system. Let's hope that we can we can keep this topic alive. Lauren, it's been lovely to have you on the show and I hope that you haven't minded um, an extended interview to, to really look at this, this important material. Thanks so much, Marissa, and thanks for giving us so much time on it. We really appreciate it. Very important. It's essential. Okay, Lauren, thanks so much. Take care. Stay safe and let's talk again soon. Thank you. You take care too. Take care. Cheers. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And joining us now is Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. And he's going to be talking about a very special and important forum that's happening tonight and giving us some updates about refugees and asylum seekers and the very important work of the Refugee Action Collective. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Marisa. Lovely to have you. So I'm wondering if you could just start off talking about the forum. Um, We've got a forum tonight on uh, Australia's treatment of um, LGBT I, uh, refugees um, that sort of uh, came about because one of our speakers is the um, partner of a long-term uh, detainee um, and there's a, a petition up to try and get him out of detention. Um, he's, you know, at risk in detention, um, you know, uh, because of um, being uh, LGBTI. Um, and we've also got uh, Alison Batterson, who is, you know, one of the uh, long-standing refugee lawyer who's acted for a range of um, LGBTI uh, refugees, um, including uh, Sultan, uh, who's going to be one of the speakers, who um, is a former refugee and former journalist from Saudi Arabia, um, who came to Australia in 2019 um, and declared, honestly, intention to seek asylum at the airport and then was, um, you know, taken straight to detention. And as he said, the, the Saudi regime had threatened to jail him, but the Australian regime was, was the one that actually did. Um, and he was then separated from his partner. He's, he's finally out now, but he'll be um, speaking about his uh, story um, and it's you know it's it remains a threat to um, LGBTI refugees to hold them um, 
in detention in Australia. They can be a threat if they come out. Um, there are some who've been held on uh, Papua New Guinea where, you know, uh, gay sex remains a crime. Um, and uh, so we'll be talking about those particular outrages and um, issues and what people can can do. And so that forum is uh, this evening at uh, 6.30. It's an online forum. And so if people go to the Refugee Action Collective Facebook page, uh, you'll be able to find a, a Zoom link for that and we encourage people to come along. So this is a very, very um, important topic that isn't really discussed very much, is it, Chris? Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, Australia's treatment has been uh, shameful, um, either often not acknowledging it or coming up with ridiculous tests for people to, you know, prove that they're they're gay. You know, asking questions in refugee hearings about whether they listen to Madonna, um, asking them to prove, um, you know, uh, sex. Um, it, it, it's it's you know, I guess part of the um, uh, discrimination deterrence against refugees has involved, you know, ongoing discrimination against um, gay, lesbian, transgender uh, refugees. So basically, I can imagine then that they were, certainly wouldn't be allowed to express that sexuality in other countries. Uh, well, it depends what countries they they come from. Certainly, if they're fleeing to Australia on that basis. Uh, no, it's it's often something which is uh, very hidden, or at least um, apart from, say, close family and friends would be hidden. You know, there are countries that have the death penalty. Um, so, you know, absolutely not. So it's, it's um, yeah, it, there are uh, difficult issues around uh, around these things. Very difficult. And will the forum be concentrating on how um, they're treated in detention? Uh, yeah, the forum will be uh, concentrating on how they're treated in detention, uh, the risk of um, that they face within uh, even Australia, where you know it, it's uh, you know people are able to get married now. It's not a crime, uh, but nonetheless, people can can face uh, a real threat in the detention um, environment. Um, you know, behind closed doors, uh, at the, the the whim of. Um, guards and, you know, you can get um, all sorts of people in detention as well. Um, the And so, yes, we'll be talking about those things that, you know, that uh, obviously if they weren't, they shouldn't be detained, no refugee should be detained and then it wouldn't be an, an issue. Uh, so we, be, we will be calling to um, free... Uh, LGBTI refugees, um, Ali in particular, not his uh, real name, um, and in, uh, all refugees from the detention system. So this this is actually detention centres all over Australia that we talked about, or just Victoria? Uh, the, the particular case we're looking at is in Victoria, but um, it's, a, it's an issue all over Australia. Um, it's an issue offshore. It's, it's been an ongoing issue. Indeed, it is. No, this is this is very important, Chris. So, so for the benefit of, of new listeners that may have tuned into the the, the Doing Time show, mm. can you just um, not define, but just talk a little bit about 
what this what LGPTI means, just so that listeners can be aware of, of what that is? Um, okay, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, um, uh, queer, asexual, uh, you know, sort of spectrum of sexual discrimination, uh, people who face discrimination based on their sexuality, uh, who they love, who they are, um, you know, which uh, shouldn't happen in this day and age. Um, but when people do flee to Australia, um, you know, from various regimes, including Saudi Arabia, uh, seeking um, protection, that they shouldn't face double discrimination, and that you know, to, to be to to be put through the ringer for their sexuality again um, in Australia, where people are often uh, not believed. Um, they're you know very uh, <coughs> and they're, they're they're detained or they're separated from partners. Um, so yes, that is um, that's what we'll be talking about. Yeah, because basically, like, don't the men the men are with the men and the women are with the women, right? At night. Say that again. Sorry. The the men are separated from the women at night, aren't they? In detention. In. Time. In detention, uh, it depends where you are in detention. There are some family groups that have been kept together, but on on the whole, uh, yes. Yeah, the guards wouldn't care. Sorry. The guards. Wouldn't Actually, no, care that's, anyway. that's not the case. That's, that's sorry, it's not. It's not always the case that um, they're separated. That there can be different right. compounds. Um, different compounds. Yeah. 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 Chris, thank you so much. Can you just repeat the forum details, please, for tonight? Yeah, it's um it's six thirty. Um, it's online uh, via Zoom. There's three speakers. Uh, so Phineas Hartson, a, a transgender woman lawyer, partner of an immigration detainee who's been detained uh, indefinitely for eight years since 2012, and um, she's a LGBTI and refugee advocate, member of um, Kaleidoscope Australia and the Pacific uh, Sexual and Diversity Network. Then we've got Alison Batterson, who's the founder and director of Human Rights for All, um, and she's a lawyer and migration agent who's represented um, LGBTI refugees and asylum seekers, and Sultan, a uh, former refugee and Saudi Australian, um, Saudi Arabian journalist who escaped his homeland with his partner, and just recently been granted a bridging visa by the Australian um, government. Um, and if I've got uh, Time, I wouldn't mind just a, a little update on detention generally, if that's all right. Absolutely, we've got time. Go ahead. Yeah, there was a um, a serious suicide attempt in uh, at Kangaroo Point uh, detention in Brisbane uh, last night. That was only stopped uh, by last minute um, intervention of guards, and there was a real danger there would have been a, a tragic outcome if, if that. Uh, if that didn't um, happen. And uh, this man was a Somali refugee who was transferred from uh, Nauru in June 2019 under the family reunion provisions of the Medivac legislation. Uh, that is, his wife and son, three-year-old son, were brought here and his son required special, special treatment. And so he came out under, you know, so his son wasn't, um, wasn't separated from his son. But the... The uh, coalition government has subverted that legislation and he has been held in closed detention at Kangaroo Point for 16 months ever since he came here. 
and hasn't been able to see his son and his wife, um, except from the balcony of the hotel, uh, in, in all that time. And we're seeing more and more of um, these things. I mean, all the refugees in the Kangaroo Point and the Mantra in Melbourne came here for medical treatment, and their their health is being uh, destroyed in detention. You know, that legislation is being subverted again. And we've seen this year uh, more than a doubling of serious self-harm and suicide um, attempts in detention um, in the hotels, the alternative places of detention. It's, an, it's a one in four people has committed self-harm or attempted suicide in uh, MITRE in Broadmeadows, uh, closed detention. It's, it's one in two, which is just an astounding uh, figure. And it is a is a crime against people that shouldn't be shouldn't be happening. Uh, so just now that um, the uh, restrictions um, have been eased, that we just heard about about an hour ago, uh, the Refugee Action Collective is going to be calling a uh, protest um, at the Mantra Hotel on Saturday, uh, November the fourteenth. Um, those details should be up on our Facebook page in the next, um, you know, half hour to an hour. Um, and so we'd encourage people to come along on Saturday 14th of November to call for the release of the Medivac refugees in the Mantra, in MITRE and uh, all across Australia. Okay. So, so this is actually going to be at the Mantra, but it's going to be protesting against... Yeah, people, people have to register because there are still... Um, limitations, but people can meet in groups of 10, is my understanding. It doesn't have to be from two um, households. So we're going to organise people into uh, groups of 10. There'll be a registration form um, on our website so that we can uh, do that. Um, But, yeah, um, refugees in Kangaroo Point have been protesting every single day, protests continue in the mantra, and uh, we think this sort of solidarity is, is really important. It is extremely important. And in fact, last week I actually interviewed Moz, who's um, currently detained in the Mantra Hotel. It really is heartbreaking, Chris. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm very glad you've had Moz, and like I'm sure any of the people up at Kangaroo Point would be happy to speak to you as well. Um, oh, that would be very the other actually it's very yeah good. no no be, it would be a good thing to hear directly from um you know the the people who Australia has detained for it's well over seven years now these are people who've committed no crime it's it, it's just an uh, outrageous um human rights abuse that their detention uh continues it's outrageous um, in that you know they were meant to come here for treatment as a result of the Medivac legislation, and then that legislation was scrapped, and they're stuck here now. Uh, yeah, they're stuck here. Um, uh, there's still, you know, there's still 300 offshore. I mean, if, if Australia accepted New Zealand's offer, they could be. Um, that that doesn't have to be the case. It's very expensive as well. It's going to Peter Dutton's happy to pay 1.9 billion in the next year for that amount of people. Um, it's it's brutal. It's um, the, the torture of people is expensive, and it, it has to end. Indeed, it does. And and I've I've actually had several interviews with Moz, and one of the things that he talks about quite a lot is his ongoing problems with asthma, 
and battling with that that wretched condition and also being detained where he can't even go outside. Yeah, no, people's mental and physical health continues to deteriorate. I mean, particularly for people who come with mental health issues, you, you can't get better in detention. I mean, you know, Patrick McGorry, the Australian of the Year, called these called detention factories for producing mental illness. It makes people worse, and these are people who are supposed to be getting treatment and they're being punished, and it's for political uh, gain for the coalition. Um, I mean, it's arguable whether they're still getting that gain, but that's why they're doing it, and, um, you know, it has to end. So we'd encourage people to get involved. RAC is an open group for anyone to come along, get involved, uh, come along to a forum, come along to any of our Monday night meetings um, and help uh, put an end to this outrage. And these meetings are, at the moment, still through Zoom? Say that again? These are still meetings with the Refugee Action Collective on Monday nights? They're through yeah, they're Zoom still primarily? They're Monday nights and they're via Zoom at the moment uh, because of the, um, the COVID uh, restrictions. Uh, yeah, so we, we're able to organise some protests now in person, but the meetings are still via Zoom. Chris, thank you so much for coming onto the program and I will be in touch with you shortly about perhaps organising some of the asylum seekers from Kangaroo Point. That's a hotel, is it? What? Uh, it is, it is a hotel. It is a hotel. Um, and a bit like the, the mantra, people are locked in their rooms, uh, you know, for most of the day. I mean, here in Victoria, it's 23 hours, so they can't get out for... Um, Exercise. They're not able to protect themselves from the threat of COVID nineteen, and well, they just shouldn't be locked up. Full stop. You know, they can't open That's their right. windows. They can't. Yeah. And lastly, Chris, um, without going into too much detail, I mean, we've talked about this quite a few times um, about you being yourself being charged with incitement um, at a protest. Oh, yes, that saga continues. So for, for people who are unaware, on April the 10th, Good Friday, um, uh, the Refugee Action Collective in Melbourne organised a safe uh, car convoy um, to protest the um, detention of the um, refugees in the Mantra Hotel. So it was safe, no more than two people from any house in a car. We didn't get out of our cars. I didn't actually get to go because the police came to my house beforehand and charged me with incitement for being one of the um, organisers. Um, you know, it's a particularly worrying uh, precedent. The last time that law was used was in 1992 against protesters and people were found not guilty um, then. It could obviously be used against any sort of protesters, climate protesters, um, unionists. And uh, I've got a, um, a contest mention coming up on November the 18th. Um, there, that's likely to be an online hearing. There will be a presence outside the courts as per, you know, the, the regulations, 10 people, whatever we are allowed to, ha to have as um, a protest. Um, it looks like the full hearing will be um, January or February um, next year. Um, you know, the lawyers think that we've got a, a good grounds, but um, it is it is worrying sign that I've been charged. It was in, intended to um, you know intimidate people from 
continuing to protest even in COVID safe ways. Um, and so it's uh, yeah a case that has implications way beyond myself. Oh, absolutely. In, in particular, because these increased police powers, it'll be interesting to see whether the increased police powers will continue because tomorrow the four the four um, reasons to leave home will be removed tomorrow. Um, yes, so that's that's a good thing. And, I mean, we'd also say to, to Premier Daniel Andrews, I mean, you know, Scott Morrison is responsible for putting the refugees away, but yes. Premier Andrews could speak up, he could use the health regulations to free the refugees rather than trying to criminalise those people who draw attention to um, their circumstance. Um, in you know, back with the let them stay refugees in Baby Asher, who um, doctors and nurses refused to let in um, back to Nauru out of the hospital. At that time, um, after the big protest, Daniel Andrews said that those people were welcome in Victoria. Uh, these are people who are already in Australia, so it caused no problems. And he, here we got the same situation. These people are already here. Um, there are people from Manus and Nauru who came for medical treatment already in the community. There's no good reason to keep these ones locked up. And if um, you know, if, if Premier Andrews spoke up again, about it again, it could make a difference. Indeed, it could make a difference. And let's just hope that you know we can get out of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no, I mean, I think all of us are, are <laughs> uh, wanting to get out of lockdown and you think how bad it is for us and just think of refugees and they spent seven years on, in lockdown. And Thank it, you. That yep. has to end too. Because really, we don't, we don't, we're not really experiencing lockdown. We've, we've got, you know, our well, well, we are and it has caused hardship for all sorts of people. But for, of course yeah, it it's, it's, yeah. But what I'm saying is that, you know, at least we can leave the house. And you know yeah. you've got, for example, people like Moz who who are locked up in a hotel room all day. People like at Kangaroo Point, and I'm certainly not trivialising the experiences of others either. Yeah, no, that, that's true, and they're also at the whim of Circo guards. I mean, there was footage, I think it was from 2015 or 2014, which just came out of um, a, a, a refugee Christmas Island detention centre being assaulted by guards and having his face pushed down so hard on the concrete it knocked out a tooth. Um, and these are the kind of things that happen behind closed doors when people aren't watching. I mean, it's why, you know, Dutton and Morrison wanted to seize asylum seekers' refugees' phones. That's been stalled for now. Um, but if <laughs> we, we need to get people out. Indeed we do. Chris, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to, you know, to do an, in, an extended interview with you. Are there any final uh, comments that you'd like to make? No, thanks again for having me on. Again, for anyone who's free, please come along to the RAC Forum uh, tonight, 6.30, on LGBTI, uh, Australia's treatment of uh, LGBTI refugees, and um, you'll be able to find that if you go to Facebook and just search for Refugee Action Collective and you'll, you'll find us. Good on you, Chris. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. 
lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie-like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's gonna be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now listening to Radical Radio 3CR. That's such a cool announcement and so true. And the Doing Time show is just about to conclude and thank you very much to both of our guests for coming onto the show. Thanks to Lauren and, and Chris. And we're going to be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, by the Rumpy Band. And see you next week. Stay tuned every Monday for the Doing Time show from 4 to 5. Stay safe and take care of each other. Bye.